why don't we have a word of prayer and as others come in here and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for again this time together when we can study the book of Romans and, uh, what a, an inspiring book it is as we think about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel that saved us and brought us to this place in our lives and how thankful we are that we have the privilege of knowing you and your son and the Holy Spirit. And we have this great confidence that you are in control even in these turbulent times and that uh, our ultimate destiny is safe with you. And we know who has control and hold on us. And so we're very thankful. Thankful for all that you do for us. Thankful for this time together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at top of page four. Yes. Uh, yes, we're at Paul's gospel, verses one through four. Let me uh, share. Let me bring this share screen up so we can start on that. And uh, let's just remember what we discussed uh Last week, we had kind of just started the introduction to the epistle. And we noticed that Paul is writing to the church at Rome. And even though Paul is a Roman citizen, um, it does not appear that Paul has ever visited Rome himself. Remember, he grew up uh, in uh, Tarsus on the right there on our, on our map. And uh, went to Jerusalem. And then he's had missionary journeys in the east. But he has apparently never been to Rome. He's writing to Rome. And this is his sixth epistle chronologically. At least the sixth canonical epistle. We sh- I shouldn't say the sixth. Because I'm pretty sure and most agree that Paul wrote other epistles besides these particular epistles. Besides the 13. I've just got uh, the 10 there. Uh, there, But... Uh, Verse 10, but he probably wrote some others to the Corinthians and so forth. Um, so mute yourself if you're not muted, whoever is, uh, unless you have a question. Let me see if I can uh, see who is not muted here. Can't uh, do that. Okay. I'm going to mute you, Sharon. I'm going to try to mute you, but I can't do it. Oh, I thought, let me see if I'm, it says. You're not, you're not muted. Oh. Okay, thanks. Um, so this is the, uh, sixth epistle, the longest one written to the church at Rome, written around AD 56 at the end of Paul's third missionary journey when he's at, in the city of Corinth. And he's finishing up his third missionary journey, and now he is planning, he says, to take an offering that he's collected from the churches in the east, the Gentile churches, churches mostly of Gentiles, take it to Jerusalem and then come to Rome. And that's his plan. And so now he's writing and saying, remember from chapter 15, I want you to sponsor me on my trip to uh Spain that is I'd like to use uh I'd like to use um your church the Roman church as the home church as the base church just like the church of Antioch was for my uh trip to Spain and throughout the western part of the empire to evangelize that he's evangelized 
some of the major cities in the eastern part of the empire. And so that's what he's writing about and he's talking about. And we looked uh, last week um, at, um, we're looking at the introduction. We looked at uh, the address. We're looking at the address, the kind of beginning address, verses 1 through 7. We saw Paul's credentials where he introduced himself as an apostle. And then we're talking about Paul's gospel in verses 1b here through 5. Um, so we're looking at um, page 4, as uh, I've been corrected here a little bit here. And uh, Paul says, uh, he has said that in in verse, uh, to get the context here, he has said uh, previously in uh, in uh, verse uh, 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And then uh, that's what we're talking about here, Paul's gospel, the gospel of God. And um, I say here, this is the gospel from God. And, of course, we know the word gospel means good news in the New Testament. So he's talking about the gospel that brings good news from God about how Christ has intervened to save us. Then verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So this is kind of interesting. He says that this gospel that I'm preaching, and I had been preaching, and this gospel that I want to explain to you and make sure you're clear on it in Rome is something that he actually promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So I'm saying here the gospel is not something totally new, uh, not a Pauline intervention, in, uh, innovation, but something that was in the Old Testament, at least in seed form. Uh, there is, um, in the Old Testament, a, um, a, uh, a, a, certainly the basis of the gospel message. It starts in Genesis. Remember Genesis 315, uh, where God is pronouncing a curse on the serpent, on Satan. And he says, you've messed up things and man has messed up things. The fall has plunge the human race into sin, but someday there is someone who's going to come. That's the Messiah, of course, Jesus, and he will crush your head. He will undo what you have done, Satan. And so right there we have the promise called the Proto-Evangelium or the Proto-Gospel, and it continues throughout the Old Testament. Um, so there is a relationship between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, there's there's continuity and there's discontinuity. That's what I wanted to kind of emphasize here. That uh, there is we're not we're not completely under the Old Testament. For instance, the law, which we've been talking about and we will talk a lot about. That's why I was showing this chart right here. We talked about this last week and said that. You know, in the Old Testament law, it's possible to think about it in maybe three broad categories. There is like civil laws that Israel had as a society, as a, a, a government, as a, uh, a country. Uh, for instance, there was a law that said 
if you have on your rooftop, you must put a railing around the top of your roof. And that's, that's, it has moral implications, but mainly it's a civil law. It's just to protect people from falling off your roof. Of course, we know about ceremonial laws, about sacrifices, and there were moral laws like the Ten Commandments, adultery, lying, stealing, bearing false witness, and things like that. So there is a continuity with the Old Testament, but it's mainly in that moral law, not in the ceremonial, not in the civil law. So Paul looks back in that Old Testament, and I mentioned some scriptures here, and he sees that what the gospel teaches or what the gospel says is is taught there, particularly about God's righteousness. He says, verse Romans 3.21 but now apart from the law, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. So apart from the Mosaic law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Now this is going to be the big theme here that's coming up, the righteousness of God. How are you and I to be righteous before God? How can we be accepted before God? And Paul says it's even made known in the Old Testament apart from the uh, the law of Moses, the law and the prophets testify. Now, the law and prophets is a way of referring to the Old Testament scriptures. He uses Romans 4, 3 later on in chapter 4. He says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So even a man like Abraham, who lived before the law, was able to be right with God through faith. Uh, he believed God. I say here, Jews consider the entire Old Testament as prophetic for Matthew eleven thirteen for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Uh, prophets then does not refer to those who held only held the office, but it's used here in a wider sense of those who wrote scripture, which include men like Moses and David. So the Jews, when they divide up their scriptures, they have three parts, even today. They talk about the law the prophets, and the writings. And so prophets includes even men like David. Uh, David is considered a prophet because he wrote scripture. He had the prophetic gift. And so remember Luke 24, 27, that's the road to Emmaus. When Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples on the road, and he says, he begins to explain to them who he is. And he says, he explained who he was going from Moses and all the prophets. So he looked back at Old Testament scripture to explain his mission and what he's done. Acts 3.22, for Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me. Uh, Acts 2.30, but David was a prophet. And so what, what what Paul is saying here is that this gospel that I'm preaching and, and delivering to you and explaining to you is not totally new. It's there in the Old Testament. We think of scriptures like Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, talking about the, the, the sacrifice of our Savior there, described pretty vividly in Isaiah 53. So it wasn't totally new. The gospel is uh, promised beforehand in a sense, not completely revealed like it is in the New Testament, obviously, but it's there. Uh then verse 3 says it, it's regarding his son. Now, the rest of that verse, uh, if you go on and read that uh, regarding his son, it says, uh, I'll just read 3B because I'm separating that uh, unnecessarily here. 
regarding his son who as to his earthly life was the descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I'm just talking about the first part here uh, regarding his son. But um, if you take a look at the, the whole context that got together, verses three and four go together very closely. The gospel is about his son. And then we have an explanation of who the son is. So let's talk about uh, this son. The gospel is regarding his son. So the focus of the gospel, I say here, is a person, God's son. He's the sum and substance of the gospel. It's central theme. Son refers to him in his eternal preexistence and defines his eternal relationship to God. So we talk about the preexistence of the son. The son didn't come into being at Bethlehem. I remember when I was in college, I had a teacher who went out to teach at a Sunday school class once and he was talking about how that uh, Jesus existed before he was born in Bethlehem. And uh, boy, the, the people, some people in the church were very confused about that. They, they thought that Jesus sort of came into being. <laughs> they thought that the son of God came into being in Bethlehem. Well, no, that's not true. So the son of God is the eternal son. And so we think about the Trinity. Here's a, common diagram that's used to try to explain to us maybe the Trinity. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But they're different persons. The Father's not the Son. The Son's not the Spirit. So we talk about three persons, one divine essence. Three persons, one divine essence. And so the gospel is about the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And so Paul is talking here now, the gospel is regarding the son. That's the son of God before he became a human being. Now we're going to get to his becoming a human being in the very next part of the verse in 3b, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we have two aspects here about the son, the son as to his earthly life, and then as to his resurrection. So I say here, um, the remainder of verses three and four defines the son by referring to two historically successive stages in the life of our savior. These are indicated by the contrasting phrases who as to his earthly life was the descendant of David, which refers to his incarnation. Remember, incarnation means enfleshment. So the son of God took upon himself humanity. Remember John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, that's the son, and the word was with God and the word was God. But verse 14, and the word became flesh, the word became a human being. So we're talking about the son who takes upon himself humanity. Uh, that's his incarnation. And then verse four, he's exaltation, we might say. So as to his earthly life, he was the descendant of David. 
So we know that he's in the messianic line. He's of the tribe of Judah. That's what the Messiah had to be, uh, the king uh, and the Davidic line and so forth. And who the, through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. That refers to his exaltation or lordship as the messianic king. So I say here in the last part of verse three, Paul is saying that the pre-existent son of God, that is, he existed before his incarnation. The pre-existent son had a historical beginning as the son of David, the Messiah. He had a beginning as the son of David. He took upon himself humanity. Then we have this phrase in verse four that could cause some trouble. Appointed the son of God in power points to a stage beyond his incarnation. Paul is saying the son has been appointed the son of God by virtue of his resurrection. I say this theological problem, this this theological problem, the theological problem this seems to create, adoptionist Christology, can be easily removed by a couple of considerations. Now, what am I talking about here? Well, think about this verse and what it's saying. It says, the gospel concerns the son, that was verse three. The son, uh, as we would see on the, on the screen here on this chart, the gospel concerns his son, who is appointed son. Now, what, what, that, that seems to be a little contradictory when you think about that. Just look at it. The gospel concerning his son who was appointed the son. I've just been teaching that he's the son of God from eternity. He's the eternal son of God. How could he be appointed the son of God? Well, uh, that's not what it's exactly saying, but there have been people in, in the church, in the early church particularly, who who believe that they believed that the human man, Jesus was adopted usually at his baptism by God and became part of the Godhead kind of a lesser God that's called adoptionist theology. He was adopted. Uh, this human being was adopted. Uh, that's not what this is teaching at all here. This is saying, because it says right in the beginning, the gospel regards his son, and this son was then appointed the son of God in power. So what I'm saying here is we, we this adoptionist theology is incorrect, and we can see that in a number of ways. First, the idea that the resurrection caused Jesus to be, in some sense, appointed son of God has parallels elsewhere in the New Testament. So let's look at some of those in Acts 13. We tell you the good news. This is the Apostle Paul. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, your children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today have I become your father. And I say here the text quotes, that is Acts 13, from Psalm 2-7, and Romans 4 probably alludes to Psalm 2-7, which speaks of the coronation of the Davidic messianic king. In speaking this way, Paul and other New Testament writers do not mean to suggest that Jesus only became the son at the time of his resurrection. In Romans 1, we must remember that the son is the subject of the entire statement. It is the son who is appointed the son. So what we're talking about here is uh, at his uh, at his resurrection, Jesus is 
has a, like a coronation. He is now coronated as the messianic king. I say second the words with power modify appointed, appointed the son of God in power. That's the important words. So the son is appointed the son of God in power. Paul is claiming then that the pre-existent son, who is always God, always the son, entered into human experience as the promised Messiah, was appointed by virtue of his resurrection as the son of God in power, the messianic king. So Paul is saying by virtue of Jesus' obedience to the to uh to the will of God, like he talks about in Philippians chapter two, and because of God's saving power through the gospel, as we're going to see in verse sixteen, the Son of God attains a new exalted state. He is now Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice that last phrase there. He's the Son of God in power. And now he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what Paul is just saying is, he's not saying the son became the son. The son was already the son. But the son is given by God the Father an exalted state as the death, as the exalted messianic king. Um, remember what Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18. All power, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. So what Jesus is saying is God's authority is now mediated through Jesus, the son of God. He rules. Remember, Paul says, every knee will bow to him and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He's going to be the one who judges the earth. So here he comes to earth. He's born the the son of David, but he takes this lowly state as a servant. And now Paul's saying he's appointed the son of God in power, the powerful son of God with all this authority. As I say uh, next, the transition from verses three to four, then is a transition from the son as Messiah to the son as Messiah and powerful reigning Lord. Acts 2.36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. This is Peter on the day of Pentecost. Jesus has, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So the son of God entered the human stage of his existence by birth. This was appointed, this was, this was uh, followed by an appointment to a further uh, status uh, to carry out all this implied in his sonship. And this further status is his appointment as the Messianic king. Uh, upon his resurrection, he was enthralled as the Messianic king. And then that final phrase in verse 4, Jesus Christ our Lord is a summary of the doctrine of Christ, of the Christology. Now, why is Paul saying all this? He's saying all this because he's going to explain the gospel about Jesus. That's what the, the, the what we're going to be talking about, the gospel and uh particularly justification and sanctification but you've got to be you got to be clear first about who this gospel is about and his person and who he is and he wants the romans to be clear about that when he's explaining this first part here this introductory about jesus this is a very long one through seven members a very long introduction to an epistle he goes on to say in verse five through whom through him that is through jesus through the this exalted Lord, 
we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. I say here, Paul's description of himself continues in this verse with an indication of the purpose of his apostolic call. The we refers only to Paul himself. Sometimes we call this an editorial we, for you speak in the plural, which is not uncommon to Paul. The purpose of Paul's commission as an apostle was to call people to submission to the lordship of Christ, a submission that began with conversion, but was to continue in a deepening lifelong faith. So Paul says, we have received, I have received, Grace and apostleship. God called me to be an apostle to call the Gentiles particularly to the obedience that comes from faith. So when you and I come to faith in Christ, when God called us to faith in Christ and we accepted Christ, he called us also to a life of obedience. Remember, he says he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is no uh, I grew up in a, in a kind of a theology that said you accept Jesus as your Savior, and then later on you make another decision and accept Jesus as your Lord. And that's just not the way it is. Uh, when you trust Christ, he is your Lord. You may not fully understand all that. You certainly don't. We don't all understand all that. But he's your Lord, and you owe him your obedience from the moment that we are saved. And so this obedience to Christ as Lord is... Close related to faith, as us, as we see here. It's an initial, uh, initial faith in Christ is an obedience and then it continues. I gotta move my batteries from you, low. <laughs> okay, so you mute yourself there. Is that Diane? Yes. Okay. No, that's Linda. Linda, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Dr. Um, Combs, Dr. Yeah. Combs, could I ask a question? Yes. Before we get too much further, just to clarify. Um, his his reason for for talking very specifically about the power that was appointed to Jesus um where we know we know from having the whole of scripture that he's God he's always been God he always will be God and he has all the power okay but the people of the times had seen him as a human being, right? Right. So is it not possible that Paul understood their need to to see him not only as a human being, but as God himself, clearly, because how are we going to give our complete allegiance to a mere human being? He had to, to clarify that he he is God. I, I have a struggle myself with the explanation because yeah. I'm on the other end of it. I have the whole of scripture to yeah. tell me who he is. So, but do you think it's possible that it was because of the people he was speaking to that he explained it in that way? Well, there, it doesn't seem like in the epistle that, uh, there's any, any indication that they doubted the deity of Christ, or they doubted that he was God or something like that. But it is, it is, there is a problem, as you say, when he came to earth, he takes, as Paul says in Philippians 2, he takes upon this role as a servant. He humbles himself. He's obedient to death and so forth. And I think Paul is just trying to explain a proper doctrine of Christ. 
We've got to understand Christ in his pre-existent state, who he was. He's the son of God, but he took upon humanity. He became a human being. In that human state, he was humbled and humiliated. But then as the God-man in that he's always the God-man now, he's always a human being, he'll always be a human being, and never give that up, God exalted him uh, to this state of messianic king. So I think he's just trying to explain the stages in Christ's life. Now, there may have been people who didn't understand that completely. Uh, I grant it. I mean, it's it's even hard for us if, when we're first saved to comprehend all this thing about the Trinity and the deity and all that. But I think he's just trying to bring them through uh, all the stages of Christ's historical existence from his pre-existence to his ultimate exaltation to where he is now in heaven, uh, you know, in heaven seated at the right hand of father making intercession for us. I think he's just trying to explain all that and clarify all that. Now, whether or not there were some people who didn't, who, who doubted that, he doesn't specify that. So, I hope that makes more Thank sense. Than that. <laughs> All right. Let's, um, anything else? Um, so I'm saying here that, uh, Paul says he's received grace and apostleship to call the Gentiles to obedience. And I said here, all the Gentiles uh, specifies the arena of Paul's apostolic labors. Remember, we've talked, have emphasized again and again that Paul, the other apostles were primarily to the Jews. They did some work with Gentiles, but Paul was particularly called to be an apostle to work with the Gentiles. Romans eleven thirteen. I'm talking to you Gentiles as I am the apostle. Romans 15, we read before. Yet I have written boldly to you on some points to remind you of them, uh, to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now he's particularly mentioning this because they're Gentiles. This is, this is a primarily a Gentile church, though still a lot of Jews. And so he has the right to explain and command their uh, obedience. For his namesake, I say, expresses the Paul, the ultimate focus of Paul's ministry. Notice it says, uh, we've received grace and apostleship to call the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake, for the sake of the name of Christ. So Paul is saying here that ultimately he doesn't minister for personal gain. He doesn't even minister for the benefits of his converts. That's important. I mean, we, 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 we want to give people the gospel because their destiny is doom and destruction. And so Paul says, uh, but that's not the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason I'm doing this, he says, is for the glory and benefit of Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, here's what Stott says, one commentator, the highest all of all missionary motives is neither the obedience to the Great Commission. That's an important thing. If you ask a missionary, why are you going to the mission field? Well, because there's the Great Commission. It says take the gospel to all the nations. Well, that's important, but that's not the primary reason Paul says. Nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God in verse 18. I mean, that's also a motive. 
we were commanded. We have the Great Commission. People are dying. They're on their way to hell. That's a, that's a motive. But notice what the greatest motive here, he says, but rather burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul says here in verse 5. Well, let's, let's come then to verse uh, 6, the readers, finally. <laughs> and you also are among those Gentiles. Okay, now here's why I've been explaining all this Gentile stuff to you. Because it's pretty obvious you Romans are among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. Paul says the Romans are among the Gentiles and are thus within the sphere of his apostolic commission. So I have the right to talk to you and to write this epistle and explain things to you. The word call here denotes God's what we call effectual call. God calls us and we respond. Remember, Paul will say later in Romans 18, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. And then verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So here Paul concludes this saluta- this opening address, this opening greeting that he began in verse 1. Uh, instead of the normal Greek word for greeting, Paul uses usually the phrase grace and peace. Uh, we get, we have uh, our salvation is because of the grace of God. And because of that grace, we have peace with God. We're reconciled to God. We're not enemies of God, as Paul will say in Romans chapter five. All right. Let's look at, uh, Paul's explanation B here. Paul's uh, interest in the church at Rome. So he wants to explain now, okay, before I get to explaining the gospel to you in verses 16 and particularly verses 18 and following, before I explain this gospel in some detail, uh, I want to explain to you why I'm interested in you. Now he sort of has because he said, I'm the apostle of Gentiles and you're Gentiles. But I say in these verses, his, his purpose is to establish a rapport with the believers at Rome. He hadn't visited the city. He had no official connection with the church. The church at Rome, uh, you know, may have been started even before Paul was saved. We don't know. Uh, Paul was probably saved a few years, uh, some few years after Christ. We know Acts chapter nine. Um, and by then um, there was most certainly a church in Rome. He says in verse eight, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. So everywhere Paul goes in the Roman world, remember, he's been all over the eastern part of the empire on his missionary journeys. He's heard about Christians in Rome. Now, remember, he's writing this from the city of Corinth on his third missionary journey. But Paul first came to Corinth in Acts 18, where he established the church. And when he came to uh, Corinth in Acts 18, he met a couple there named Aquila and Priscilla who had come from Rome and they were apparently already Christians. So he knows uh, Aquila and Priscilla and they told him about the church at Rome and and where he, and he's gone throughout the Roman empire to some of the largest cities. So he's heard about Christians in Rome. So he's heard about these people. And so uh, he's thanking God for them. Um, he's acknowledging, uh, that, uh, he's heard about their faith and that 
that, that, that makes him very thankful for them. Now, because he is thankful for them, he's praying for them. Uh, God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. So the proof or confirmation of Paul's thanksgiving in verse 8 is his prayer. This phrase in my spirit refers to his inner being and emphasizes wholehearted service in the gospel. So Paul says, listen, I'm thankful for you, and that leads me to pray for you. And so, you know, if we're thankful for other believers, then we will pray for them, or certainly we should pray for other believers because we're thankful for them. I say here, Paul has been frequently praying that he might visit the Roman Christians. He had, in fact, made his desire to visit them a matter of constant prayer. He says, how constantly I pray that I can come and see you in Rome. Well, then we see his reasons for wanting to visit Rome, verses 11 through 15. He says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. So the first reason Paul felt that such a visit would bring spiritual enrichment both to their lives and to his own, he could, through his presence, be the instrument of God in imparting some spiritual gift. Now, what does he mean by that? I want to come to you and part to you and part some spiritual gift. Now, we we usually think about spiritual gifts. We think about those gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Um, but I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. Because those spiritual gifts, as we're told in Corinthians, are uh, actually given by God. They're given by the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 10, and 11, to another miraculous gifts, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the same, all these are the work of the one and the same spirit, and he, the spirit, notice, distributes them, that is the spiritual gifts, to each one just as he determines. So these spiritual gifts are given sovereignly by the Holy Spirit the gifts that we have, spiritual gifts that we have. So what is he talking about here? I say here the word spiritual gift here means a concrete expression of grace. The word impart seems to mean share in its other usages. Uh, you know, we, we do that sometimes. We say, let me impart some wisdom to you. Let me impart some wisdom. We mean share some wisdom. And I cite some other verses here, like First First Thessalonians two eight. Paul says, uh, "Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well." Well, that's the same word in part. We're delighted to share. So Paul is here talking about sharing some spiritual insight or ability with the Roman believers. I want to come, he says. And I believe I can share some spiritual insight, some spiritual ability 
probably what he's referring to is his understanding of the gospel. Paul says, I want to come and share with you this spiritual insight about the gospel. And that is, as we go through the book, the fact that his gospel proclaims the unity of Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles as one body in Christ. Um, if they can grasp that idea that we are one in Christ, Jew and Gentile, uh, one is not over the other or superior to the other, he's hoping that will dissolve some of the divisions that we see in the book, like we get to Romans 14. And there's the divisions about the law and things like that. And we'll talk about the, the Jewish elements all through this book. And so Paul hopes that by imparting his understanding of the gospel, they'll be strengthened and unified and then they can support him. He needs a unified church. You know, it's, it's very difficult. I've known missionaries who unfortunately were sent out by a church. They, that was their home church. And, uh, their home church had a split and, you know, dissolved or something. And then they're kind of left on the field, uh, with no really supporting church. That can be very, very difficult kind of thing. And so Paul wants a unified church to be behind him and help him, support him, pray for him, as he says in Romans 15, as he goes to the Western part of the empire. And I say here, Paul's purpose is that they may be made strong. And to be doubly certain that his words would not be misunderstood as an arrogant boast, he delicately and tactfully explains in verse 12 that the spiritual advantage resulting from his stay in Rome would be not a one-sided thing. He says there would be mutual benefit. That is, verse 12, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Even the great apostle, isn't that interesting? The great apostle says, I can be encouraged and built up and lifted up by other believers. Uh, what inspires and fortifies believers is when they perceive faith in other Christians. Um, it's that's that's the reason really that's one of the great reasons for, our, for the church, for our church, other churches. Uh, you, I mean, I you know you, you've heard that the word church, ecclesia, means something like assembly. Another way to translate ecclesia, I think really the best translation is the word community. And that, Paul, Jesus said, I'm going to build my community. A church is a community. So we're a community, Bible community, I guess. Community, Bible community. <laughs> but we're a community. And so... That's one of the things, it's it's very difficult, really impossible, to be a Lone Ranger Christian, to exist by yourself. Uh, it's so much, it's so much encouraging to, ha- to, ha- to know other believers and to see other believers, to see them go through difficulties and hardships and to see them persevere in their faith and continue in their faith, to have people who can encourage you when you're discouraged, uh, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about a man in our church right now who, uh, has been, has a, a lot of, uh, difficulties, a lot of physical difficulties, uh, potentially mortal physical difficulties. Well, they are, they are pretty, pretty serious. 
but this man is just a joy whenever you're around him, you talk to him. Uh, you know, it's just very, very encouraging that you see how his Christian faith enables him to go through this experience, uh, the experience of cancer and to, uh, to persevere. And so that helps all of us. It encourages us it, uh, to trust Christ as well uh, as we see other believers do it. So Paul says he wants to visit Rome, first of all, verse 11 and 12, so that I can bring this spiritual gift to you, this gospel, understanding the gospel, so that you and I can be encouraged together. But second, verses 13, he says, uh, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among other Gentiles. So here's the second reason in verse 13 for wanting to visit Rome, that he might have a harvest among them that he's had among other Gentiles. And that is a reference uh, probably to the winning of new converts and the building up of the church. And then finally, verse 14, he says, I am obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks both to the wise and the foolish. So here's now the third reason Paul gives for wanting to visit Rome, to fulfill his sense of missionary obligation, his apostolic obligation. Paul says, I'm obligated to the Greeks and the non-Greeks. I say not because of anything they had done for Paul, but because of what God had done for Paul. Um, the King James here, I've always thought, is a little uh, kind of, I think it, it always led me on the wrong path here because it says, I am a debtor. I am a debtor both to the, to the Greeks and the barbarians. I'm a debtor. So it's like we think about a debtor, I owe something. I owe something to the Greeks and barbarians. But the word really, this is a better translation. I have an obligation. Yes, he has an obligation to all people, but it's not, it's not because of anything they had done. It's because of what God had done for Paul. That's his obligation. That's our obligation. Our obligation to the gospel, to the proclamation of the gospel is not primarily what other people have need of. It's primarily what God has done for us. And so Paul is referring here to his apostolic obligation. It's what he refers to back in verse five. We've received grace and apostleship to call all Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. So this was Paul's is God has called him to this and he is obligated then to take it to the chief city of the Gentiles, Rome itself. He says, verse 15, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. Because of this, his sense of obligation to all ranks and classes of people, I say Paul was eager to preach the gospel to the Romans. So Paul feels this deep conscious. He's conscious of this uh, responsibility. He's been, he's been set apart for the gospel, for preaching of the gospel, and that's his obligation. Other verses speak about that, Ephesians 3.8. Although I'm less than the least of 
all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me, what? To preach the gospels, preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. I am the apostle of the Gentiles, we've read in 1 Corinthians 9, 16b. For, for when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, Paul says, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach, because God has called me and given me this obligation. Well, that's the introduction here uh, to the epistle, where Paul is introducing himself to the Romans. Now we come to the statement of the theme, verses 16 and 17. I say here practically all commentators agree that verses 16 and 17 give the text, or we might call the theme of the entire epistle. The heart of the passage is summed up in the word gospel, which has already appeared in verses 1 through 9. Now there's a very tight argument here that Paul is following. Let me just trace that before we get into this. Just a moment. So Paul has said um, in verse uh, 14 and 15, I'm obligated to preach the gospel. Uh, that's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. Verse 16 begins with a four or an explanation for, and it's explaining verse 15. Verse 15 says, listen, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you at Rome because... I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. That's why I'm eager. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he says, we say, Paul, why are you not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and the Greek. Then 4, verse 17, well, Paul, why is it that the gospel is the power of God? How does that work? How does the gospel, how is the gospel the power of God that brings salvation? For or because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So that's the tight argument here. So let's break that down a little bit here. So in verse 16 and 17, three things then are affirmed in reference to the gospel. First of all, A, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I say the use of the negative concept, not ashamed, probably was dictated by Paul's awareness that in the proud capital of the Roman Empire, the message of a crucified redeemer was a stumbling block, a thing of scorn and ridicule. Remember that the Romans only allowed crucifixion for the worst criminals. Uh, Roman citizens could not generally at all be crucified. And uh, it was just for the most despised, the most wicked crimes was crucifixion. And so that that would be a real scandal to say you were trusting in someone who was crucified. Uh, in a similar vein, Paul cautioned Timothy, so do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. And so uh, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but I understand how it's pretty easy and how people have feelings like that. Because, you know, 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 2.14, remember, 
the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, um, but considers them foolishness. So the gospel is not a message that people are longing to hear. Uh, Galatians 5.11 speaks of the offense of the cross. So people are not dying generally to hear the gospel message. It's offensive. Why is it offensive? Because it's a message that says you are a sinner. You are sinful. (laughs) And no one wants to hear that. I mean, our whole culture and society is you're a wonderful person. You know, don't let anybody tell you you're not. You're just a wonderful person. And, you know, you can do your own thing. And, you know, don't everybody give you, don't, don't everybody, don't let anybody say anything negative about you. Well, the gospel says a lot that's negative about us. It says that we're sinners who are rebelled against God and we need a savior. And so the unsaved are going to have a natural hostility to the gospel. So it's not surprising that Christians feel some reluctance in proclaiming this gospel. But Paul says, in spite of that, in spite of the antagonism, he was not ashamed of the gospel. And then he says in verse 16b, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Why are you not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of the gospel that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. This is why Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel whose content is Jesus Christ mediates the power of God leading to salvation. We have to remember that the God saves through the gospel. Remember that text? For the message of the cross is foolishness of those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because that's how people get saved. That is the only way through the gospel message. I say here, the phrase, everyone who believes reveals that that's the salvation available through the gospel is not unconditionally and universally experienced. It's effective only for those who believe. You have to believe. To believe is to put full trust in God, who, as Paul says in Romans 4, 5, justifies the ungodly by means of the cross and resurrection of Christ. Now, we can't exclude intellectual assent from faith. We don't want to do that. But Paul's emphasis is here on surrender as an act of the will. Paul's understanding of faith is not only you have to agree with a set of truths, but you have to trust a person. So let's just break that down for a second here in conclusion. Theologically, when we talk about faith, or as Pastor Ken likes to say, the word faith means to believe. What is believing? What's required here when Paul says that the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, who has faith? What is that? Well, theologically, faith includes three elements. First is the intellectual element. One cannot have faith in nothing. You know, some we hear in our day, we'll just have faith. He's a person of faith. Well, okay, faith in what? 
uh, UFOs or, you know, what, what, what is your faith in? You know, so there has to be intellectual content, something to believe in. Uh, the second element is assent. One must believe in the truthfulness of the content. One not only must know the facts, but one must believe the facts are true. There are many people today, uh, many people who understand the Bible, who write books about the Bible, who know what it says, but they just don't believe it's true. Uh, they lack a third and critical element, personal trust, commitment. So there has to be intellectual uh, uh, content. You have to know something, the gospel truth. You have to believe it's true, and you have to commit to it, a total trust in the message of the gospel, a trust in Christ to save us. So I say there's a sense in which the faith of justification or salvation, I'm going to talk about justification here in just a moment in the notes, is essentially passive. By this, we do not mean that the person is totally passive, a totally passive instrument through whom believing occurs. No, Paul makes it very clear that we're responsible to believe. Uh, we have to believe something. We, but it's not in the sense of a work. It's not in the sense of something we do. Paul distinguishes between what he calls faith and works. Faith and works. Faith is passive in the sense it's a response. It's an acceptance of a gift that God holds out to us by his grace. So believing then is a genuine, you know, human activity. We have to do it, but there's no merit. There's no worth for which God is somehow bound to reward us for salvation is his from first to last. So uh, the reformers, uh, the Protestant reformers talked about faith as the instrument of salvation Faith is the passive instrument, not the active cause. We're justified by means of faith, not because of faith. Now, I know sometimes we use words differently. We might say, somebody might say, why are you saved? How are you saved? I'm saved because I believed in Jesus. We use the word because. But I'm talking about in a technical sense. I'm saved because God saved me. But I'm saved through faith or by means, the instrument that God used to save me was a faith that he created in my heart. And then the word everyone, I say, points up that such things as race and culture are not obstacles to the effectiveness of the gospel so long as there's true faith. And the last phrase, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles, indicates there was a historical priority in God's original program. That is, originally, God gave the gospel, and he sent it to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Paul himself often uh, went to Jews first, but that was a first century priority. God wanted the gospel to go to Israel. Unfortunately, most of them rejected that gospel, and then we turned to the Gentiles. Well, I guess we better stop here. It's 8.02, and uh, thank you for joining us tonight. Any questions by anyone before we go tonight? You can unmute yourself here. Let me cut this thing off here. Any questions? Did everybody get the letter that Pastor Ken sent out about the, uh, what we're planning to do and so forth? Yeah. Yeah. Good, good. Yep. Well, I wish we could get together sooner, but 
we'll just have to see how things go here and uh, in the next yep, few that's for sure hopefully and prayerfully we'll see this thing diminish more and we'll see things open up more pray that it will all right thank you for joining us tonight and we'll see you next week lord willing good night <laughs>